This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome, all of you happy warriors, you eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many evil social pathologies that it generates. When I promise to reveal to you how the world really works, it's always in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans of history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity which would almost be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites running our media, education, and government bureaucracies who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. But oh, what damage they do manage to inflict. But never fear. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, I solemnly commit to transform my own timidity to triumph. And if I can do it for me, and you listen in, maybe I can help you too. Together, we will replace diffidence with determination and displace the divided counsels of doubt with the steady eyes and the firm hearts of those who, just like us, know where they are going and know that they are going to get there. We strive for success first with our families, then our finances and our friends, after which we will be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and dictates of those who consider themselves to be our superiors, our elites, our betters, our bosses, 
our rulers. But before we change the world, we have to change ourselves. Before we make the world a better place, we have to make our homes and businesses better places. And then our efforts and our dreams become leveraged, and together we achieve so much more. This show would, of course, be far more entertaining and far more dramatic if I proclaimed how we have to throw ourselves into the task of overturning the tyranny of the Veterans Administration, the Post Office, and Amtrak, defying the dictators of the IRS, pulling down the venal and self-interested politicians on the national and state levels, batter the bureaucrats into submission, and generally suggested that we take to the ramparts. But only very rarely do those kinds of populist revolutions bring happy endings. Here, I think we should help one another build the basic interpersonal institutions of civilized society, families and homes, businesses and civic organizations. By building up our lives and those of our family and friends, little by little we change the culture and the country just one heart at a time. And uh, in, in my own life, I must tell you that, uh, you know, obviously a, a good part of my life and, and that of my wife and, and also that of my children uh, revolves around trying to change the culture. There's no question about it. We, we are dedicated to that, and much of what we do uh, is geared towards one very simple end, which is to make ancient Jewish wisdom and the Bible more accessible to more people because I have had amply proven to me over many years the transformative power of the Bible. I've seen the way in which it has changed entire nations. I'm able to watch through the study of history what it has done for geopolitical development all around the world over hundreds of years. And if it can do that there, well, I believe it can do even more with us right here. But, of course, that's not the only part of my life. There's family time, and that's most important to me, the time I get to spend together with my wife and my children. There's that time. There, there is self-development time, time devoted to growing myself, uh, studying new parts of ancient Jewish wisdom. I know that sounds an oxymoron, doesn't it? Uh, but when I say new, I mean new to me, things I haven't, or things that I need to review and go back because I haven't looked at them for 20 years. Um, sometimes it's, it's books that I need to read. Sometimes it's to spend a little time in Jerusalem and uh, devote myself to writing. Uh, all of these things have to happen. And then, of course, there is also uh, relaxing time. And what Susan and I like to do in our relaxing time is for the most part, we, we tend to uh, leave that for one month in the year, in the summer. And as some of you who've been regular listeners to the show, you know that we love to go boating in British Columbia. And in fact, 
if you go back and look at some of the earlier episodes of this show, uh, whenever you're uh, you're looking at a show that was taped sometime in August or September, there's a pretty good chance uh, that it was taped on board a small boat exploring coastal British Columbia. And uh, you'll probably, I, I know I don't make any attempt to shield out the sound of seagulls or uh, splashing water or anything else that's going on, and you, you hear that sort of thing. Now, one of the things that uh, we have wanted to to try and do, we've never we've never actually got to a planning point on it, and it sort of lingers as a uh, maybe one day want to do sort of thing. But um, it's to boat around the eastern United States on something called the Great Loop. Now, what is the Great Loop? Well, we never really studied it terribly carefully, but uh, we know that there is something called the Intracoastal Waterway, and you can travel all the way from southeast Florida all the way up through uh, canals and bays, and all the way up uh, through uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, before that, you've gone through the Carolinas, you've gone through Georgia, all of it, and you, you're not out in the ocean. You're in sheltered water all the time. So uh, the kind of boat needed for this trip does not have to be a, uh, a powerful kind of boat capable of handling the tremendously dangerous weather offshore, shall we say, Cape Hatteras. Uh, you know, in fact, much of the eastern seaboard at certain times of the year can, can be subject to, to awfully challenging weather for boaters. But you don't need that. You just, you're inland all the way, all the way up the intracoastal waterway, and then um, you, you go through um, uh, the Chesapeake Bay, the Delaware Bay. Uh, you go past, uh, you can go past Philadelphia, and then you come to New York, and then you keep going, how? Up the Hudson River. So that part was easy, right? Uh, all the way up from Miami, all the way up to New York, and all the way up the Hudson River, as far as you want. You could even uh, get to Lake Champlain in Vermont. All of that is, is reachable. Now, for the downward run, uh, that seemed to me to be fairly easy as well, right? You are from the Great Lakes. Uh, you uh, can leave the Great Lakes at Chicago. Uh, there are several other routes as well, but basically before very long, you get into the Mississippi River and uh, you head on down. And if you want to, you can also do some little diversions uh, through uh, waterways in Tennessee, beautiful waterways in Tennessee. But bottom line, you eventually get out into the Gulf, and uh, from the Gulf of Mexico, you, you, you just hug the coast and follow around, and there you are, back in Miami. So it's pretty straightforward, except for one thing. How on earth do you get from the Hudson River to the Great Lakes? And that turns out to be a fascinating story and one that intrigues us enormously, uh, one that uh, really fires our enthusiasm for actually uh, trying to do this. When I say trying to do it, the, the obstacles are not navigational. Uh, they are merely um, you know, time-wise and, and uh, logistical problems like that. But um, how does one get from the Hudson River 
to the Great Lakes. Well, it turns out, <laughs> it turns out that there is an amazing human-made construction called the Erie Canal. And what happens is that you leave the Hudson River near Albany, New York, and you go through some locks at Troy, and then you are in a canal system. And 363 miles later, you arrive after being in a canal all that time, you arrive in Buffalo, New York, and there we are, Buffalo. And uh, then from Lake Erie, you can go through uh, Detroit or through one of the canals, and you get yourself into Lake Huron and then Lake Michigan, and there you are, Chicago, and then after that, the, uh, the Mississippi River, and away you go. You're, uh, you've done your what's called the Great Loop. You've encircled the eastern United States. Remarkable. Sounds wonderful. Something I think we'd probably really love doing. But uh, first of all, the story of the Erie Canal is worthwhile talking about for a few minutes. Because the odds are that you probably haven't thought about this very much. <laughs> and I can understand that. Uh, you've got busy lives, and uh, who has time to think about the Erie Canal? But as a symbol of the potential greatness of the United States of America, right now I cannot think of a more inspiring and amazing story than the story of the Erie Canal. And I want to tell you just a little bit about it, about it as soon as we get back. The website, you'll remember, of course, is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, love for you to head over there and uh, make sure you're signed on for the weekly mailings. Make sure we have a way of letting you know where we are and uh, what is available. We also uh, put up a fair amount of useful information up on the website in the form of material you can read or listen to or anything else. And uh, also, you can ask the rabbi, you can pose a question or just communicate. Maybe it's just an email and it's a hello. All of that on rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, this is me, your rabbi, and I will be back with you in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how-did-it-fit-in-there box. You just let it unfold, and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. 
Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. Casper.com slash rabbi. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, here we are together again, back on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly commit myself to revealing how the world really works. And the way the world really works is that you have to know which things are unchangeable and enduring, and which things, following certain principles, constantly change and evolve. Now, you're probably aware of the Jewish star uh, known in Hebrew as Magen David, as the shield of David. And um, this uh, is found on the Israel flag. It's quite well known. How, how, do you, how do you draw one of these? Well, you draw an equilateral triangle with its base at the bottom, and you then draw another same-sized equilateral triangle, and you invert it, you, ch- you rotate it 180 degrees, and you center it over the first one. And that's, that's now a Star of David. Uh, a triangle, as you'll know, is the strongest uh, possible engineering structure, which is why the trusses on uh, certain types of girder bridges are always built in triangles. In other words, if you were to attach... Uh, four pieces of wood together to make a rectangle. And, you know, let's say you took uh, four pieces of wood each, uh, you know, uh, two by four, right? Uh, You took two by four uh, lumber, and you you cut four pieces of two feet each, and then you attach them with bolts at the corners till you've created a rectangle. And then you stand this thing up on edge, and if you try to sit on it, it's going to fold down becoming first of all a parallelogram and then falling completely flat. It has no strength. But if instead of making a four-sided shape, instead of that, if you took three pieces two feet long of two-by-four stock and you bolted them together at the corner so you have a triangle, you now can put any weight you like on the apex of that triangle, standing it on its base, And until you reach the breaking point of the wood itself, it'll take the weight. You know, triangles are like that. And uh, it's it's probably worth pointing out at this this moment that the geometrical opposite of the Star of David would be what? Think about it. Just the way I said, arrange three pieces of wood, if you like, or three lines— arrange them in the strongest possible arrangement, then do it again, invert the second one 180 degrees and place it centered over the first one, and you've got your Star of David. Okay, fine. So the opposite of that now would be to take three elements, namely three lines, and attach them in the weakest possible way. Well, what's the weakest possible way to arrange three? Well, just bolt them so as that... um, 
they're end-to-end, but don't join. In other words, let's call the first, uh, the first stick AB if we mark its ends A and B, and we call the second stick CD, uh, the third one DE, uh, a, B, C, D, uh, a, B, C, D, E, F, I'm sorry. Um, then if we attach B to C and D to E, we've now got a long line. If we don't join A to F, joining A to F gives us triangle again. But if we don't do that, and then we just m- make them even weaker than a straight line, we arrange them in a, a sort of a Z form, right? We lay A B horizontal on the ground. We then arrange the next stick, CD, vertical, pointing upwards. And then we go uh, EF horizontal again. So you've now got the opposite of a triangle. And you lay that down. And then you do it again and invert it, rotate it 180 degrees, and place it on top of the first. What I've now described is something known as the swastika. That's right. A swastika is the geometric opposite of a triangle. Uh, Excuse me, of a Star of David. Both of them made up of two three-lined shapes, one of which is rotated 180 degrees and then centered and placed on the first one. one. Uh, One example where the basic element is a triangle gives you a Star of David. The other one where the basic element is the very opposite, the weakest way of attaching three sticks together gives you a swastika. Anyways, um, I tell you all of that because uh, because I, I wanted to depict the inner meaning of the Star of David. Okay, so I told you there's two triangles. The first one has its base on the bottom. Now, I want you to think of them now no longer as engineering elements as we'd find in a roof truss or a bridge, uh, but now just think of them as a graphic depiction where uh, the, the vertical axis is... T- and I don't want to get uh, unpleasantly technical here, but if you think of the vertical axis as time and the horizontal as knowledge, then think of one area of knowledge, one uh, category of knowledge which starts off very broad, very, very knowledgeable, very extensive, very wide, and then as time goes by, it narrows and narrows and narrows till it's finally a point. And then there's another form of knowledge that starts as a point. This is the other triangle now because it's on the, it's, uh, the point is at the lowest uh, point on your paper, uh, the apex of the triangle, and now as time goes by, it gets broader and broader and broader, and you superimpose these two, and now you've got a graphical depiction of both kinds of knowledge. What are the examples of both both kinds of knowledge? Well, first of all, how about knowledge that as time goes by becomes more and more and more? Uh, let's think of uh, medical, scientific, technical, engineering, chemical, biological. All of this knowledge, pick any point you like, you know, pick uh, the year 1700. We could well say, you know what, you know what was known about these subjects in 1700? We may as well, I mean, there was something, but we may as well in the context of today, we might as well depict it as just a point, a dot. I mean, almost nothing. However, as time went by through the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, it gets broader and broader and broader. We know more and more and more about science, technology, engineering, medicine, chemistry, biology. That's the area of knowledge which gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Now, there's another area of knowledge. You know, again, we can, we can pick, uh, if you like, 1700. Now, this area of knowledge seems to shrink more and more and more. What is this area of knowledge about? This area of knowledge is uh, things that um, uh, male-female relationships. It is possible that the general culture that Americans in 1700 had much more accurate understandings of male-female relationships than we do today as a culture, not you and me necessarily, but as, as a culture, uh, in terms of structuring families, in terms of relationships and marriages. All of these things we know less and less and less about as time goes by, not more and more and more. So we've got to recognize then that there are certain things that keep on changing. And so, you know, I would never say that uh, since I went to uh, engineering school uh, many, many years ago, uh, you should check with me before you want to build a bridge. I'd say not at all, because in the, uh, in the, in the years that have gone by since then, so much more is known about these subjects. Uh, when, when I went to engineering school, there they weren't really integrated circuits. They were just starting to talk about integrated circuits. Uh, transistors, semiconductors, were there, but they were discrete components. The idea of being able to cram thousands of them onto a tiny chip of germanium or silicon, nobody had thought of that yet. So as time goes by, a whole lot more information is known. However... If you want to know something about uh, uh, things that haven't changed, family relationships, uh, the need to earn a living, how to understand money, uh, even the idea of travel, right? Because there have always been hotels. My great-great-grandfather traveled on business just the way I do. The only thing is that I get to stay in a more comfortable hotel than his. But we both stopped for the night. We, all, we both paid somebody to let us sleep in a house for the night. So those basic things, how about transport? Throughout the Bible, transport is always captured in the Bible by use of the word camel. Now, a camel is very different from a Cadillac or a jet plane. But the concept is still exactly the same. Uh, freedom and tyranny. Right? These mean for a generation that remembers that Stalin killed tens of millions of his people, a generation that remembers that, uh, that uh, Ho Chi Minh killed uh, millions of his people, that we, we remember that Pol Pot killed millions of his people. Uh, the, the, the vastness of what a, a tyrant means today is, is probably different. But the concept of freedom and tyranny the concept of oppression and freedom, the concept of slavery and freedom, these things go back a long time. And uh, once a year, we Jews have an annual episode, an annual injection of bringing the intellectual and philosophical and spiritual germ of freedom into our very souls. And we do that over the course of a week, uh, starting with a Passover Seder and culminating with the end of the holiday of Passover seven days later. And uh, usually, I uh, most years, I accept an invitation to be a scholar in residence 
uh, teaching at a Passover Freedom Conference. And uh, this year is the same. Uh, Susan and I will be teaching at a conference, and I'm recording this just shortly before the holiday of Passover this year. And this year it so happens, you know, last uh, last year I think it was, I taught at a Passover conference in uh, San Diego. This year I'm teaching at a Passover conference in Niagara Falls. And I'm very excited about that because, believe it or not, I have never seen Niagara Falls. Now, I have seen Victoria Falls in Africa, uh, but I've not seen Niagara Falls. You know, I'm, I, I've been pretty much a West Coast sort of person, so... Uh, I, I, probably I know the West Coast better than the East Coast, I imagine. But anyways, Niagara Falls has not uh, been on my itinerary, but it will be this Passover, which is wonderful. So I was thinking to myself, okay, you know what? I think it might be nice if instead of flying into Buffalo and then uh, you know driving the last half hour to Niagara Falls, how would it be if we uh, drive you know, from New York and we go to Niagara Falls that way? So I thought, okay, that would be interesting. And uh, I start looking at the map, and what do I discover? That if you want to take, you know, basically you're crossing New York State, right, from from uh, from New York City to Buffalo or, or to Niagara Falls, you're doing this great big run directly across the state. Trouble is, there are no roads doing that. You can't do that. Basically, what you're going to want to do is take Route 87, all the way up north along the Hudson River to Albany. And then you're going to get on the New York State Freeway, which will cross the state. And you'll go through uh, Schenectady and Amsterdam and Utica and Oneida and Syracuse and Rome and uh, and then Rochester and then uh, Batavia and then Buffalo, right? But Why? Well, then I thought, well, how about if I try to take the train? Why don't I just take an Amtrak from New York to Buffalo? And again, exactly the same thing. The train doesn't just go directly northwest from New York to Niagara Falls. Again, the rail track pretty much parallels the New York State uh, Thruway. Again, all the way across, if you like, the top of the state just a, a little bit south of Lake Ontario. I, why do I need to go through Rochester? But I do. Which then raises the question of why is it that the rail and the uh, New York State Thruway, no, both the road and rail, take the same route horizontally across the northern part of New York State, instead of just taking a direct route directly diagonally across the state. Why? What's, what's that all about? Well, it wouldn't surprise you, since I said I was going to talk about the uh, Erie Canal, won't surprise you that the New York State Thruway, Route 90, uh, Interstate 90, and the Amtrak rail bed go exactly along the route of the Erie Canal. Why? What's that about? Right? The Erie Canal came first, then came the railroads, and then came the roads. And they all, they all could have picked their own route, but they didn't. They copied the route that the brilliant builders of the Erie Canal had selected in 1817. Why? 
Let me tell you that as soon as we come back. But uh, first of all, you know that you will want to encourage this uh, podcast. And uh, at the same time, I would like to further help you with things that I cannot and don't do on the podcast. And uh, that is uh, my library packs. Okay, what are my library packs? My library packs contain uh, books, audio programs, and visual materials. Basically, my entire oeuvres, <laughs> my entire uh, catalog of work. And uh, that is now going to be available on a 15% discount, the li- either of the library packs. And you'll see them both on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, L-A-P-I-N. That's French for rabbit. And no, I'm not telling you the story of my grandfather, the rabbit farmer near my grandfather, uh, who, the rabbit farmer near Grenoble, France. That's for another time. But Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and you look at the library packs. Okay, fifteen percent discount now. And I'm going to tell you why we're doing that. The the code for that is Passover, spelled P-A-S-S-O-V-E-R. Passover. And use that code, you get 15% discount and also free shipping in the continental United States, by the way. Anyways, you'll take a look at that and uh, and see it. Why a special discount? Because um, it's a little bit of a hassle to purchase that thing uh, right now. With any luck, you'll, you'll be able to do it. But here's the snag. The snag is that um, the Passover holiday uh, starts off with two uh, days, the seven-day Passover holidays has two days um, initially on which uh, the Bible prohibits Jews from doing any work, and it ends with two days prohibiting Jews from doing any work. Now, although uh, no work is involved in running a website, uh, at least not of that kind, uh, Susan and I decided many, many years ago that we wanted to try and adhere to the spirit as well as the letter uh, of the law, and we we keep the uh, the website, the the web store, shut during those opening two days of Passover and the closing two days of Passover. So there is a possibility that when you go to RabbiDanielEvan.com and you try and order yourself a, uh, a, uh, a library pack, you may well discover that you cannot do that because the store is shut. Okay, so which means you have to remember to go back and do it uh, two days later or maybe a day later, depending. It'll it'll tell you when, when it reopens. And... Uh, and so in order to uh, compensate you, as it were, for the hassle that you might run into, uh, depending on whether you know which days are Passover or not, anyway, regardless, 15% discount, the code is PASSOVER, P-A-S-S-O-V-E-R, and it's at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, thanks so much for heading over there and taking a look. I really appreciate that. And uh, we are taking a quick break, and then right back, as I tell you, exactly why all the routes across New York State, and we haven't even got to the incredibly inspiring part that uh, that I, I so love the story, and I hope that, uh, that it inspires you to look more deeply into the greatness of the people who built the United States of America. Back with you in just a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards. These massive old locust trees that are probably a couple hundred years old, they're always the last to start to bud out. And every year I think, well, this is the year that they've died. I'm, I'm at that point now. 
where it's April. I'm still looking for signs of life, and so I'm starting to think, okay, maybe this was the year. 40 Acres and a Fool, on demand. New episodes posted every Saturday at noon Eastern on TheBlaze.com slash radio, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. That's right. And uh, I know that uh, I was going to tell you right now uh, why it was that the railway and also the surface road highway, the New York State Thruway, uh, follows the path of the Erie Canal. And I will get to that, but I, I wanted to just pause in that story and talk, <coughs> pardon me, talk a little bit about the spiritual gravity that pulls a culture downwards. And what I'm referring to is the string of calls from right away across the political spectrum, uh, whether it's uh, McCain of the, uh, of the Republicans or uh, Schumer on the left. Everybody is calling on the president to react to the fact that, uh, or the allegation that Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, used uh, poison gas on some of his citizens. And uh, the, the it's time to do something. After all, uh, everyone agrees, yes, Obama did not do it. Well, look, I think it was appalling that Obama showed the, the fecklessness of incompetent parents uh, to issue threats to Syria. This will be the red line, and then to cravenly ignore it <laughs> when they did what enormous damage that did uh, to America around the world. Everyone from China and Korea in the Pacific uh, to everyone else in Europe, everybody took it as a given that Obama would not react. There'd be a lot of talking and posturing and chest beating, but it all would amount to absolutely nothing. But now they said, now with President Trump, now he's got to do something. Well, I want to explain for just a moment why I believe that would be absolutely the dumbest thing, why he absolutely should not do anything at all. And uh, what I want to do is, first of all, I want to go back. I want to remind you of uh, Joseph Stalin. Now, Joseph Stalin had a bloody reign during he, all the years he governed Russia. But I'm talking now just about the post-war years, okay? Only the post-war years, 1946 through 1953. And uh, during that time, Stalin murdered how many Russians? A number that nobody knows for sure, but without a shadow of a doubt, way more than the number of Syrians that Assad has murdered, way more probably by an order of 10 times more. Uh, millions and millions of people literally massacred, murdered, including, by the way, uh, about 100,000 priests and monks and nuns. He really went for the church. Um, and during that period, how often in America, and by the way, President Truman was the president, uh, during that period, how often 
did Truman issue threats to Stalin saying, if you don't stop uh, this uh, inhuman attack on your own people, this violation, this genocide, we're going to do something about it. We're, this is our red line. How often did Truman do it? Not once. Not once. What was going on in America during those years? Uh, Frank Capra was making a movie with Jimmy Stewart. The movie was called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the CIA was established. The United States Air Force, for the first time, became its own branch of the service. Um, Israel was established and recognized by Harry Truman in the United States. Um, you, had, you had the Korean War uh, going on. 1952, you had Eisenhower winning the uh, election that November. Um, you had uh, Idlewild Airport, which was later going to be called New York, um, John F. Kennedy Airport, New York. That was opened. Uh, do you remember the Rogers and Hammerstein South Pacific? That, what I'm trying to show you is life was pretty quiet and pretty normal those years in America. Meanwhile, over in Russia, Stalin is murdering his people, and it doesn't even occur to anyone in America to say, oh, we better do something about that, right? Nothing like it. Nothing like that at all. Uh, then we've got um, a little bit later than that. In four years, only four years, Mao Zedong in Russia, excuse me, Mao Zedong in China, uh, commits himself to what he called his great leap forward. And uh, the numbers are so humongous, they're so outside the realm of comprehension that it, it's, like, I'm going to tell you the numbers, but yeah, Mao Zedong murdered 45 million Chinese in those four years, 58 to 62. 45 million Chinese, do you have any idea of those numbers? And he did that. Meanwhile, what's going on in America while Mao Zedong is murdering? Figure out four years to kill 45 million people. So it's more than 10 million people a year. Close on a million people a month are being killed in China. Meanwhile, in 1958, Elvis Presley has been inducted into the army and, uh, and uh, crowds are turning out for his last concerts. Um, Oh, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA that runs all our civil aviation, that was created. Uh, oh, Alaska became our 49th state. That was in 1959. And um, then we had uh, Buddy Holly. You remember the airplane crash the day, the night the music died? That was Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. And the big bopper died that night in 1959. Hello, baby. Yeah, this is the Big Bopper speaking. <laughs> oh, you sweet thing. Do I want? Will I want? Oh, baby. Then, uh, 1960, uh, John F. Kennedy is uh, the the elections the election goes to Kennedy, but even before that, three thousand military advisors are sent to Vietnam. The beginning of it all. Uh, Russia sent up a missile and shot down Gary Powers, United States pilot, in a U two spy plane. Um, remember Cassius Clay? That was before he became Muhammad Ali. Won a gold medal at the Olympics in nineteen sixty. Um, Sixty one. John F. Kennedy is now president. 
and um, and so far, uh, Stalin has killed. Excuse me, Ho Ch um, Mao Zedong has killed twenty million people and counting. Keep going. Uh, John F. Kennedy, Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, that uh, disaster. Uh, John F. Kennedy now sends eighteen thousand troops to Vietnam. Um, Anybody going to China? Anyone threatening China to stop killing its people? No, nothing like that at all. Uh, military embargo, not the military, the economic embargo on Cuba begins in 1962, which continued until the Obama administration. Uh, the first human to orbit space, three orbits in the Mercury spacecraft, was John Glenn. Uh, that was uh, that was 62. Uh, oh, how about this? The very first Walmart opened in that year. Isn't that something? So America's all excited about the Walmart opening, but uh, the nation that would have eventually become the biggest supplier of goods to be sold in Walmart is still killing 10 million people a month. Uh, John F. Kennedy makes a promise to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Um, oh, the Cuba crisis, of course, with uh, October that year with, uh, with Russia putting missiles in Cuba. Um, and during all of this time, while uh, uh, Mao Zedong is murdering people, how many, how, how involved does America get? How many calls on the United States to stop the killing in China? No, it's their business. It's very sad. It's very horrible. But where does this weird idea come from that it's our job to interfere with foreign governments' maltreatment and abuse of their own citizens? Why? Uh, and by the way, we don't even have to go back to uh, Stalin or Mao Zedong. How about uh, Bill Clinton, 1994? Uh, in 1994, in Rwanda in Africa, the Hutus killed methodically about uh, a million Tutsis. And this, it, like, it didn't happen overnight. It went on and on and on. Bill Clinton decided we better go in there and do something. No calls on Clinton. Oh, please, you've got to do something about this, right? Nope, no, nothing, nothing like that either. Um, and, you know, what was going on during that, that period? Well, O.J. Simpson killed Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. Um, the, uh, the Lion King came out. America was having a fine old time. Million Tutsis murdered by the Hutus. Nothing. Now, I'm not saying these are insignificant events or, or that they're not terribly tragic and awful. I'm just saying, where did this idea come from? That it's America's job to do something about that. Well, um, it might have been George W. Bush, possibly. The idea that uh, thousands of servicemen would die in Iraq and part of the economic stress that America found itself in was because of the billions upon billions of dollars that were wasted and stolen in Iraq. For what? To bring democracy there? Unfortunately, part of the people with whom George W. Bush surrounded himself uh, were people who had this dream of pushing democracy around the world and bringing American values as if by just using enough money and manpower, we could make um, Baghdad look like Wichita, Kansas. Folks, there's a cultural problem involved. And from then onwards, perhaps, started this, this nuttiness 
Now, look, um, let me just uh, make absolutely clear. Uh, it's a very sad thing, right? Very sad. And, uh, and if, if you wanted to try and do something about it and decided to raise money to send a private uh, missionary team over to try and reason with uh, with uh, Assad or with anybody else, um, by all means, go for it. Come to me for a small donation. Absolutely. I'd, I'm, I'm happy to try and play my part in stopping suffering. The United States government doing it is a totally different story. Right? There is nowhere in the Constitution at all that allows this. And the problem with it is that it's the United States government imposing its moral values on the rest of us through the power of taxation through the power of forcing us to give the money to underwrite these mad adventures in foreign countries in the name of sort of doing universal good, right? These are sad things. But the notion that it's America's responsibility to do something about it, from where? How about the people who died on these adventures? For what? For what? Now, again... If American interests are threatened or American interests are involved, that's a different story. But there is no way on earth you can possibly make a persuasive case that American interests uh, were in any way threatened, that America needed to go in and tear apart Iraq. It wasn't necessary. Oh, Saddam Hussein was a very bad man. Yeah, we know that. Assad, uh, Assad a very bad man. We get that. But it's not America's problem, and I don't see where the idea comes from that it is. And so, where where does it come from? Not not the legitimizing of the idea, but where does the notion come from? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, it comes from emotionalism. And where does emotionalism come from? Uh, the feminizing of the culture, the natural tendency, barring any external energy. Uh, the natural tendency is for a culture to become feminized. Uh, I, I don't mean that in an anti-woman kind of a way. I mean, in a way, it's suggesting that the, the culture loses its masculine attributes in terms of wanting to negotiate everything, wanting to talk about everything. Physical force is off the table and out of the question, and uh, everything has to be a matter of feelings, and compassion is important. Now, compassion is important for you and me, but compassion has no role in government. And I, I must tell you that although people have advanced a number of theories of, as to why Angela Merkel of Germany uh, welcomed uh, a million uh, uh, male, young male, the majority of whom were young male refugees from Middle East and North African Muslim countries, uh, one of the theories I haven't heard said because it's so politically incorrect, I'll just whisper it, all right? It's because she's a woman. That's why. Largely. Compassion. She's thinking to herself, what if it was my child and nobody wanted to let them in? And I understand. But that's not the way to run a government. And so uh, America has become emotionalized. And whether it's Chuck Schumer or John McCain... These are men who are now feminized men entirely. And vitally important matters like how to deal with Syria, how to, whether or not to bring um, uh, 
Islamic refugees into the United States of America are being settled on the basis of emotion. How would you feel? Or what sort of people would we be? Or this is a violation of American values. And all of this is without basis of any kind whatsoever, legal or constitutional. It's just not there. It's just the country behaving like a lot of women and very lovely, sweet, compassionate women. But it's not the way a responsible government should be operating. That's all. Not on the basis of emotionalism. It costs too much blood. It costs too much money. And it's ultimately futile. Because if indeed it is our responsibility, nay, our obligation, to end the suffering of people in, in uh, Syria, why stop there? There's people dying and there's people being tortured and there's people suffering in 50 other countries around the world where 50 other dictators are torturing and killing their people right now. And there's another 50 countries on top of that where people are dying from starvation and disease. Why stop with, with Syria? If indeed somebody has discovered a new obligation on the backs of Americans that we must pay and die for foreign suffering, why stop with Syria? And my friends, at the end of it all, it's all futile. Nothing changes. Because that's what is the normal default condition for humanity. What Western civilization has built is the unique and amazing story that we live. But the idea that any other country that falls short in this area we have the obligation to go in there and fix it up. We accomplish nothing. And that brings me to perhaps the biggest problem of all, the biggest problem for a country, and one that applies to each and every one of us as well, and that is when you busy yourself with futile projects that will achieve nothing and consume enormous effort, you end up neglecting those things that you should do, and you don't do them when you should do them. And that is a peril to your welfare and my welfare in every way as serious as the peril to America from a president listening to this feminine bleating from around the country, well, what is he going to do about this? The answer should be absolutely nothing at all. And I'm sorry if this sounds uh, lacking in compassion, but believe me, I act with compassion in my life. I feel compassion. I spread compassion. But for a government to behave with as if compassion is its guiding principle is a frightfully dangerous strategy and one that I sincerely hope we're not going to see enacted through the current administration. I really hope so. Uh, it would be dreadfully disappointing. But I, I do see the pressure being brought to bear on, on this president. There's no question about it. The enormous pressure is being brought to bear on him for sure. And again, this idea of trying to uh, overcome the entropic tendency of nations to become feminine, and also, by the way, uh, for men to become feminine as well, for fathers to know that and to be able to discipline their children is a lost art. Father can't do it because it takes a masculine strength to um, 
overcome the natural compassion in your heart and above all the desire to be loved by your children and to do the right thing and to discipline them. And uh, talking of parenting, don't ever make the Obama mistake of threatening your children and that not carrying out. You shouldn't threaten in the first place, but if you do, then you have to follow through. Don't teach your children that you're a liar, please. It's bad enough that America had a president who was one, but um, to, to teach your children that your word is not your word, if you do let a threat out of your mouth, well, I'm afraid there was a mistake, but you have no option but to follow through, you know, unless there was something completely preposterous, but otherwise you do. And uh, some of this material is covered in uh, the library pack, which is the full compendium of books, audio programs, and video programs that uh, we have produced for your value to bring useful information to you in shaping your life in terms of uh, social relationships, romantic relationships, spiritual relationships, financial relationships, all of these things in our library pack, which, by the way, right now, uh, if you're listening to this uh, show soon after its release, uh, is available with a special 15% discount. You have to just use the coupon code PASSOVER, P-A-S-S-O-V-E-R, PASSOVER, which is starting just a few days after I'm currently recording this show. And uh, if you go to rabbidaniellappin.com and use the Passover promotional code on a library pack, then uh, you'll be able to get it at a terrific price and uh, free shipping in the continental United States. So um, uh, I think what we need to do is we need to uh, pause, and then when we come back, we need to carry on with the Erie Canal and the story of commerce, why commerce is so fantastically important and has played uh, an unprecedented role in the growth and the development of the United States of America. We understood the importance of commerce as part of God's plan for humanity in a way that European countries never caught on until much, much later. The Erie Canal was a part of that story. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I'll be right back. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome back and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where uh, we remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that trade between people is a crucial step on the road to civilization. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that uh, it's part of the design that God put in place for humanity where one person has one thing, another person has another, when they switch, both are happier than they were before. Now, the reason that this works with people, but it does not work 
with uh, chimpanzees or poodles or llamas is that every single chimpanzee has exactly the same desires, needs, and urges as every other chimpanzee, and every single poodle is the same as every other, and every llama is the same as every other. Only human beings are created uniquely in the image of God, which means that each and every one of us is like nobody else on the planet. And that's what makes trade possible, because there is no way that one dog would say to another, uh, here, I'll tell you what, I see you have a bone. If you give me that bone today, tomorrow I'll give you a ride on my back. It's absurd, because the, the need for the bone is exactly the same in every dog. However, with people, it isn't like that. With us, because each of us is unique, something that I have is perhaps something I don't particularly value, but you do. When we exchange them, then I'm able to get from you something I value more. Maybe it's money. And you get from me something you value more at this particular point. Maybe it's the object or it's a service I do for you. But whatever it is, trading is absolutely fundamental to us. Um, it's how we improve our situation all the time. Now, in order to trade, what happens is, and you can go back to uh, the farming stages of a community, uh, a family lives on a farm and they produce a certain amount of uh, eggs and cheese and everything else and uh, milk and corn and wheat, whatever it is they produce. Now, they don't stop as soon as there's enough there for them to eat. If they've got a few sheep, they produce as much wool as they can. And what do they do with the rest? Well, they take it to market. That's what they want to do. For that to happen, there needs to be a market. And here we have the reason for villages and towns and cities. They are essentially giant marketplaces. That's what they are. And so uh, the... Uh, the, the requirement then is to be near a market. So I was just telling you when we wrapped up the last segment, I was just telling you why it was that in northwest New York State, the railroad between New York and Buffalo runs right next to the New York State Thruway, Interstate 90, which runs right next to the Erie Canal, which was built at the beginning of the uh, 1800s. So what's going on? Well, here's the answer. And again, it's, it's so wonderful that you actually take a look at the map of the eastern United States and you see something, especially if it's a topological map or a map that shows um, mountains, you see that there is this massive mountain range that runs from, you know, around about like Alabama all the way up in a northeasterly direction, sort of upwards and to the right, all the way into Canada. And it's called different things at different stages. So, for instance, this, this whole mountain range we think of as the Appalachian Range. But uh, when people say Appalachia, they tend to mean down towards the southern end, Virginia and Kentucky, that area. But um, 
when you hear people speaking of the Allegheny Mountains, that's not a separate range of mountains. That's just a part of this great giant range. Around about the Pennsylvania area, they call it the Allegheny Mountains. But it's all part of this giant, long, unbroken Appalachian mountain range. And then if you go further north than that, you, you come to the Catskill Range. People in New York in the summertime often say, I'm going up to the mountains. Really, where, where are you going? Going to the Catskills. Well, you really are going to the Appalachian Mountain Range. You're just going to the part known as the Catskills. And uh, if you live in New Hampshire and, uh, or, or that area and you say, I'm going to the mountains, you mean to the Adirondacks. Again, just another part of the Appalachian Mountain Range. And uh, it's a pretty unbroken mountain range, so much so that our great first president, George Washington, a, a most remarkable man by all accounts, um, had long had a vision for some way to get transport between the eastern capitals, you know, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Boston, uh, and some of the, the southern cities. Uh, Baltimore, most importantly, wanted to get a connection between them and what was called the West, which in, in those days were all the people who'd settled uh, the Ohio uh, Valley area, uh, people who um, uh, were in, in that sort of Midwest part of the country that was just really beginning to take off. And uh, George Washington was very disturbed and very worried, and he actually spoke about this. He said that all the folks in those states, in those areas there, um, are on a pivot. They could so easily turn their connection and their loyalty to France or England or Spain, all of whom had holdings. So the Louisiana Purchase, for instance, was just about that time as well. But France had a very strong presence and um, uh, because the Louisiana Purchase is uh, 1803 and George Washington, who died 1799. So Louisiana Purchase was just four years after George Washington passed away. But prior to that time, he'd always had a very strong sense of the West. As a matter of fact, uh, he'd uh, he'd led war parties out to the so-called to the west. Uh, he actually had acquired a lot of property. I'm thinking like 30,000 acres or something like that uh, out west. And so he was very strongly connected, and he had visions of uh, the Potomac being extended, the waterway of the Potomac River being uh, turned into a canal and driven all the way west to tie up with the uh, the Midwest, the Ohio River. Uh, well, what stopped that? What stopped it was the Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> there was just no way to get through that. And it turns out that there's one exception. There's one place where there's a gap, and that is in northern New York, where there's a gap in the Appalachian Mountain Ranges, um, just where the... Um, uh, where the where the uh, uh, the um, uh, Catskill Mountains, the Catskill Mountains end, and before the Adirondacks begin, there's this gap, and through this va valley that cuts all the way down, in between uh, the two sections of the Appalachian Range, uh, flows a river called the Mohawk River, and uh, that is the only low-level avenue. To get through. But wait a second. Why do you need a low-level avenue 
to, to get through. Why can't they just do the canal over the mountain? For instance, uh, Panama. Okay, now the Panama Canal is about 50 miles long, and the central part of the uh, Panama Isthmus is about uh, 60 feet above sea level. So they use a mechanism which, which goes back a long time. I mean, there were locks already in Europe in the 1600s. It's a brilliant idea. Um, what is the lock? Well, if you would just imagine a river flowing down a mountain, there's a series of waterfalls. So what you do is you build a set of gates uh, the length of a boat away from the base of the waterfall. And then what happens is you, um, you close that gate and the water fills up the chamber. The water flowing down the hill, down the waterfall, fills that chamber. So a boat now trying to get downstream can go level. When he comes to the waterfall, the boat doesn't suddenly plummet down because the area, the length of a boat below the waterfall has now been closed with the lock gates and the water's flowed into it. So now the water level after the waterfall is the same as the water level before the waterfall. The boat just goes in there. And at that point, they build a set of gates at the waterfall and they shut that so no more water can flow. And they open sluices at the, uh, out of the chamber and then all the water runs down into the river, flowing away, until the boat has been lowered to the level of the river beneath the waterfall. Then they open the gate, and that boat sails through and continues its journey. Meanwhile, another boat trying to get up the hill comes in. They close the gate behind it. They open the gates at the top, and the water flows into the, uh, the, the basin, into this, this, this compartment, and the boat rises up until it's now at the same level as the river above the waterfall, and then open that gate, and the boat sails out, and another boat wanting to come downstream takes its place, and so the cycle continues. And all this is, um, is, is very marvelous, and it's very fantastic. And... Uh, the only snag is that you have to have a water supply. In the example I've just given you, I've spoken about a river. But if you don't have that, there's got to be something. If you're just trying to f create a canal for transport over a mountain, this only works if there's a source of water on the top of the mountain. It so happens that in Panama, there is a uh, lake called the Gatton Lake, replenished by rainwater, and it's a huge lake. And um, what they did then is they built a series of locks, connected it to Gatton Lake, and then another series of locks from Gatton Lake down to the Pacific. And uh, the water flows from Gatton Lake into the locks, enabling to fill them up, enabling boats to be lifted or dropped, whatever, whichever way boats are going. And it just works fine. Now, obviously, uh, through the system of the locks, you lose... The, an enormous volume of water, the volume of the lock, every time you, you run a boat through it. So it's got to be a big, strong, reliable system of water. Uh, the, um, the, the problem with the Appalachian Mountains is that there is no water up on top of them. And so that avenue of driving a canal up and over the Appalachians, in spite of the enormous amount of work that it would have taken, would have been feasible had there been water. But there wasn't any water up there. And... Uh, 
they look at the uh, at at the challenge, and George Washington, while he's still alive, before he passes away in 1799, uh, among others, realize that there's got to be some way to enable the folks at um, in the in the Midwest to get their goods to market. That's that's crucial. Commerce is foundational to the United States of America. As a matter of fact, George Washington is extremely disturbed uh, about the French by uh, the French owning New Orleans because he's concerned. He's and he says he said the the majority of all the goods that are are grown and farmed and manufactured in the Midwest find their way to market down the Mississippi and if a foreign alien force owns Louisiana, they could just put guns at the mouth of the river and nobody could get through without permission or paying tolls or whatever the French wanted to do. In, in other words, the entire security of the, of the people, of the whole population of the Midwest. And remember, there was this idea of manifest destiny that people may not have necessarily called it that, but the idea that we were spreading and that uh, our interests lay not just up to the Appalachian Mountains, but beyond as well. And indeed, the Mississippi River, and who knows, maybe after that, even further, uh, the whole Mexican uh, purchase and everything else, that takes us a little bit later. But over here, meanwhile, uh, Washington knew that this, some way of connecting the East Coast to the, uh, to the Midwest and to the Ohio Valley was absolutely crucial. It had to happen. Um, meanwhile, there was a governor of New York. His name was DeWitt Clinton, and he was very aware that whoever would build a means of allowing commerce to travel between, um, shall we say, the, the Great Lakes area of Chicago area, the Ohio Valley, a way for them to get to the East Coast markets, um, that person would be fantastic. He'd be a hero. And DeWitt Clinton was determined that it would be him. And so with great political skill and, and I must say, with, with a degree of courage as well because there was – it was pretty scary because if it, if it failed, it was going to be a tremendous boondoggle. Uh, as a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson said with, with complete confidence there is no way at this time in our history that we could do this. There is no way to build a canal. We don't have the capacity to do it. And he was, you know, he was an influential guy. So many, many people thought DeWitt Clinton was completely nuts on this dream of some kind of, uh, uh, of a connection. Now, here's one of the reasons it's so important. You've got to remember what the countryside looked like. Uh, between the East Coast and uh, and even you know and the Alleghenies or all the way, you're talking about dense vegetation. I mean, it's almost jungle-like. There's forests. There's millions of rivers and streams. There's swamps. I mean, this is not easy going. Uh, roads were very rudimentary, very slow going. Wagons uh, pulled by horses. This was long, hard, slow travel, and. Uh, uh, it cost, in order to move a ton of whatever it was, a ton of wheat or a ton of coal or a ton of iron or a ton of hay or a ton of fertilizer from, uh, from we sh sh you know, shall we say, the Chicago area um, to the East Coast, it cost $100 a ton. It's a lot of money. So much so that people didn't do it because it was just too expensive to move goods that way. Uh, by the time you actually got it to the markets of Boston and New York and Baltimore and Philadelphia, 
uh, you'd need to charge so much that people weren't willing to pay it. It was just not, it was not economical. Uh, they knew that a canal would lower those transport costs. Just how much it lowered it was really remarkable. Nobody knew it was going to be quite that successful. Uh, once the Erie Canal was built, it costs only $5 to move that same ton from Chicago to the East Coast. Used to cost 100 but moved to $5. That gives you some idea of why the Erie Canal, when it was built, was such a stunning and stupendous success. I want to tell you just a little bit more about how it was, uh, how it was built and, and, what was, and what was entailed in driving a canal through that territory. I will just tell you that this was a far greater engineering achievement than the Panama Canal was, which was built 100 years later. The Erie Canal was built in only eight years, between 1817 and 1825. Remarkable. 363 miles from Albany to Buffalo. Up 560 feet. By contrast, oh, with 83 locks. 83 locks. And in the early uh, 19th century, they didn't have any dynamite. They didn't have the means of pouring concrete. By the time the Panama Canal was built, all of these things existed. But back then, Panama Canal, 50 miles long, about 65 feet up, into, up in the climbing, and six locks was all it took. By contrast, the Erie Canal, 363 miles long, 83 locks, and nearly 600 feet up the climb. There was no comparison. This was a stupendous tremendous feat and an amazing accomplishment, something incredibly inspiring. And uh, I should in all fairness also mention something that I've written about and spoken about before, which is, folks, it was built by thousands of human beings. Do you want to know of what gender they were? Men. That's right. They were men. If the world existed only of women, there never would have been an Erie Canal. The work was for men, real men. Tell you more about that as soon as we get back. But uh, first of all, uh, just a reminder that uh, there is a special promotional coupon available for my website, which is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, when you're at the website, by the way, you can read earlier thought tools, you can read earlier Ask the Rabbi questions. Uh, you, can, you can see the comments people have made, and you can see our responses to the comments. Um, but you can also go to the store and take a look at uh, something called our library pack. And the library pack is available now at a 15% discount. All you've got to do is use the promotional code PASSOVER, P-A-S-S-O-V-E-R. And uh, the reason is because... We are soon going to be closing the store for two days, for the first two days of Passover, and then we're going to be closing it again for the last two days of Passover. And so if you happen to hit it at that point, um, that is an inconvenience for you, for which we are very, very sorry. But uh, we want to honor the biblical command that no work should be done uh, during these specific days of Passover. So uh, in order to compensate you, for the nuisance value of having to make you go back to the website if you are 
unlucky enough to hit it just during those two days when it's closed, use the promotional code PASSOVER, get 15% off the library pack. The library pack is, is already a terrific value. It's, it's all the resource and products, visual, audio, and printed that we have. And uh, you uh, can get 15% off that, plus free shipping in the, in the mainland United States. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. So please head over there and uh, support the podcast, support the work while doing yourself a huge favor as well. And I'm serious about that because if it ends up not doing you a favor, then it doesn't do me a favor either. This is only good like any financial transaction if it helps both of us. And I think it probably will do just that. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you very soon, so hang in there. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I'm thanking you not only for being part of the show, but uh, I also thank those of you who've made an effort to share it with other people. I really appreciate that as well. The, the audience of the show is growing consistently, and uh, that means a great deal to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a bigger market for me in, in every possible way, which is more stimulating and exciting for me doing the show as well. So, uh, uh, those of you who've made an effort in that area, and many of you have, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. So I was just uh, saying, and some may think gratuitously, which I assure you it wasn't, at the end of the previous segment where I said the Erie Canal was built by men, not by women. And uh, that's just because I need every now and then to just remind myself of the insanity of the culture in which we find ourselves at this point in history – where large numbers of people, it's not a majority, it's not everybody, it's not, the, it's not the people who are the real creators and builders, but it is the, uh, the artificial people, it's the, uh, it's the bureaucrats and it's the rulers, uh, believe that uh, gender is just a social construct and that uh, you decide whether you're male or female or anywhere in between. Look, uh, you can run any test you like. The folks who built the Erie Canal were men, right? They all were men. And it is really impossible to overestimate the impact to try and understand how the Erie Canal changed America. Um, who knows if it's – honestly, I'm not even sure. Just of my own private, inadequate, poor understanding of history, I don't know if there would have been uh, a United States of America today. Don't forget, we're talking about uh, pre-Civil uh, War. Uh, just to remind you again, the Erie Canal was built in eight years. That's all. Could you imagine? Today, to build a canal, you couldn't get the permits done in eight years. You know that to be the case. And here we've got a canal built 363 miles. 
uh, built between 18, they started on the 4th of July, 1817, and it was finished in um, 1825. And uh, one of the towns that goes through, and it just opens up this whole area, places that were just unknown, uh, places that were tiny, tiny little places, all of a sudden turned into bustling, busy towns, Rome, New York, for instance. Um, these are, oh, and another, here's another little town that becomes significant at that point, a little town called Palmyra. Uh, the canal finishes in 1825, and like all the other towns on the route of the canal, uh, Palmyra suddenly gets a growth spurt, and uh, guess what happens? Five years later, the first printing of the Book of Mormon takes place. Right? Joseph Smith is in Palmyra, New York, right there on the Erie Canal. It's Wild stuff, absolutely wild. Uh, as I told you earlier, uh, Rochester, um, there was nothing there till the canal. Syracuse, um, Utica, uh, Schenectady, there are so many towns. What happened is that thousands and thousands of men who came to work on the canal, many of them, when it was done, stayed behind. So uh, what are we talking about in this job? Why, why did I say it took real men to build the canal? This was brutal grueling, dirty, tough work. That's what it was. Uh, we're talking about before the invention of dynamite. So this was done by human beings, by animals, and by very primitive black powder, gunpowder, right, which you don't get a whole lot of concussive force from that. So um, there they are. They've got to dig this. By the way, this thing came to be known as Clinton's Ditch or Clinton's Folly because the governor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, was pushing and pushing and pushing and making every necessary political accommodation in order to win approval. This thing in, um, was uh, in, in their dollars, I think the thing cost uh, $10 million or thereabouts, but in today's money it would be the equivalent of, I'm going to say, uh, easily $10 billion. So we're talking about a massive, massive project. Um, at that point, it, 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 we're very early in the history of the country, right? 1776 uh, was the Declaration of Independence. We're now talking about 1817 to 1825. So uh, this construction was scary. I mean, people were worried that it could become an absolute, I mean, it, it plunged the country into terrible debt. Um, by the way, for those of you who are worried and you want to know how the story ends up, uh, they imposed tolls on the uh, on the canal, and the cost of the canal was totally paid back, plus the return to the investors in the first nine years. That's all it took. And as governments everywhere uh, conduct business, do you think they took the tolls away? <laughs> Not for a long time, but uh, today, uh, today the the canal is still open and. Uh, Today it's mostly pleasure boats, mostly recreational boats, and you, you, you get a, a relatively inexpensive permit uh, to travel the whole length of the Erie Canal, which, as I told you, I'd, actually I'd really like to, to do. don't know if it's feasible. We haven't really sort of put it on our let's sit down and plot this list, but uh, we talk about it. And uh, let me tell you a bit more about the canal. Okay, so... Uh, you're driving, never mind now the, the cliffs, never mind the, the, the mountainous region you've got to get up, right? 565 feet they've got to climb. But um, just imagine, 
you've got to, first of all, you've got to uh, get rid of trees. And we're talking about, you know, original first growth trees. These trees are big, big trees with wide stumps. So they chop down the tree. But then what do you do? You've still got to get rid of the stump because it's right in the path of the canal. How do you do that? Right? Today you might just dynamite it out. What could they do then? So they built an ingenious machine, um, uh, think, j basically just a big uh, axle. Um, the axle itself must have been about nearly a foot in diameter. And at the end of the axle, the, you know, maybe the axle was uh, 12 feet long, maybe something like that. At the end of the axle, at each end of the axle was a big wheel, like uh, a 14-foot diameter wheel. Like, so we're talking about a big, big, big wheel. And um, in, the, uh, in the middle, or close to, not necessarily in the middle, I'm, that's a mistake, but on the axle, inside on the axle, they made another wheel, like about a 12-foot wheel. And this was so brilliant. They then wheel this contraption till it's over a stump, and they'd run chains around the stump and under the stump, uh, through the stump, and then attach it to the axle. And then they'd attach a rope to that 12-foot wheel, and uh, they'd hitch horses to that, and the horses would pull, which would rotate the axle, and then by the leverage, by the fact that the, the, the wheel that was being turned by the horses was about 12 feet in diameter, and the axle itself was only about one foot, you had this massive 12 to 1 uh, mechanical advantage, and this just literally yanked the stumps out of the ground. But, you know, I've, it just takes me a minute to describe it. It took a whole lot longer to do it. Um, and yet um, a team, one team of not a big, large number of men, about 10 men, um, by themselves could do a mile of the canal in one year. Well, obviously, there were many, 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 many teams because 363 miles just took eight years. Couldn't be done today. Partially, that's why I'm telling you the story, just to see how things have changed, how, how, uh, how exactly the, the country has deteriorated and what lies ahead. In other words, if there is to be a restoration, we've got to get back to this kind of ability. So uh, the, this thing was called Clinton's Folly or Clinton's Ditch after the governor of New York until it was a success, in which, at which point he became a big hero. But uh, for, for a number of years, they were just dismissing it derogatorily as uh, a complete mess. Anyway, 40 foot wide by 4 foot deep. They figured that was the, uh, the minimum dimensions that would allow uh, significant cargo to be carried. What was the cargo they wanted to be able to carry between the East Coast uh, cities of New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston and, uh, the, and Lake Erie and Buffalo and Rochester and Chicago? What, well, going eastbound, uh, what was carried was wheat, um, iron, um, fertilizer, coal. Those were the loads traveling in that direction. In the other direction, usually manufactured goods. But then you also had passenger boats going on the canal um, for people who were traveling uh, either on business, sometimes settlers were, getting, were moving their families out there. And there was no comparison. If you'd imagine what a journey over the mountains or, or on a wagon on rutty roads Imagine what an awful trip it was 
and on the canal, you settled into a boat, and the passenger boats had entertainment, and they had meals, and there was sleeping compartments, um, a men's compartment and a woman's compartment, and uh, there this thing proceeded at, at a stately four miles an hour. You know, they kept going uh, very often day and night. So, you know, they covered, they covered mileage and they got it done. Uh, the, the road journey by wagon was intolerable. Okay, let's just also, for those of you who are uh, not into canals and shipping, let me just explain for a moment um, what some of the, the challenges here were. One of the big problems was to stop leakage out of the canal. But you say, wait a moment, what are you talking about? Why should a canal leak? Does a river leak? No, of course a river doesn't leak. Well, the answer is because a river has already found its lowest uh, course. It's flowing downhill, always choosing the lowest path to find its way to the ocean. But a canal isn't a river. A river, wherever you are in a river, there's always a slight downhill run. That's why the river is flowing. Now, in a broad, slow-moving river like the Hudson, um, the current is slow, and the drop might be in the order of only a few inches a mile, but it is dropping. There is, there is a downhill to the river. A canal is stretches of absolutely horizontal water joined by locks. So what they do, and, and this is the way they did it here, they first of all went to a very flat section of the 363 miles. This is how it began on the 4th of, uh, the 4th of July in uh, 1817. They went and they started the section between Rome and Utica, New York, absolutely flat. Uh, it's not a big distance, 20 miles or something like that. And, uh, and then they started building out from there, and they started building in from Albany and in from Buffalo. But um, the idea is you have to create horizontal stretches. Now, what happens if there you are in the path of the canal, there's suddenly um, a valley, a canyon, or a gorge with a river flowing at the bottom of it? Now, what do you do? So you, you might say, well, uh, we'll just build locks down into the gorge and then up the other side. Again, problem, water. So you can't do that. You end up having to build some kind of either a bridge or more often what they did was they piled up dirt in the gorge and they made a, a culvert, depending on how big the river was at the bottom of the gorge, they'd make a culvert or a bridge or a tunnel so the lower river could continue flowing the way it was. But they then built this whole big embankment of dirt on which the canal crossed the gorge. So now you can see that if you're on a boat or swimming, <laughs> whatever you're doing along this canal, look over the edge. This is like being in a big bathtub because you look over the edge, you're looking down at a valley. And this is not uncommon. And so in the many places where the canal was actually above grade level, leakage was a massive problem. And one of the, the biggest problems was muskrats. Uh, muskrats just love digging through the walls of a canal. And they very often created leakage. And there were many times there were floods. And so the, the, when the canal was done, they, the canal company hired walkers to constantly walk sections of the canal to be on the alert 
for any impending possibility of a break because a break meant that water would go pouring out of the canal down into the valley below. But wait, I told you earlier that there needs to be water to make the canal function. Well, turns out the Mohawk River, remember I told you about the Mohawk River, travels uh, from the west to the east and empties out into the Hudson. And the Mohawk turned out to be a very good early source of water to feed the canal because that's one of the things you need. In order for the lock system to operate, you've got to have a flow of water. Later on, they, they built uh, a lake to store up water so there'd be a, a, a constant supply of water to keep this canal going. And, uh, and so that's it. They, they built the canal, the full 363 miles, and all of a sudden, this just opened up New York. That's when it became the Empire State. New York became this dominant – by the way, New York City. New York was by no means necessarily going to become – the, the main city of the of the East Coast, that you know, could have been Baltimore, could have been Boston, could have been Philadelphia. There was there was no reason why it had to be New York until the Erie Canal. All of a sudden, the enormous productivity, industrial and agricultural, of the Midwest poured along the Erie Canal down the Hudson River to the markets of New York City, and that's what changed everything. If you, if you imagine like a narrow uh, funnel connecting two uh, huge sections, so there you've got the, the Midwest, this enormous creativity, and by the way, the Erie Canal just made huge numbers of people immigrate into the so-called West Interior or the Interior uh, because all of a sudden transport was feasible, you could, there was a market, everything changed. And so you had all this incredible volume of merchandise uh, flowing along the Erie Canal in both directions. And so obviously all the towns along the way grew up to cater to the traffic and to become trading centers themselves. And the, this whole section of New York State, by the way, Attica, right, where the Attica prison is, the famous Attica riots of the 1970s, um, also just a few miles south of the path of the canal. But all of this area was opened up by this immense achievement of driving a 40-foot canal with 83 locks between the Hudson River and Lake Erie, between Buffalo and Buffalo on Lake Erie. An amazing thing. Changed America, and it was uh, it was vision and foresight, the understanding of the role of commerce, um, all of these amazing things literally changed the destiny of the country. It's really quite a remarkable story and, and one that I, I find immensely inspiring. Look, there are a lot of incredibly inspiring stories from the founding of the country. Uh, they were remarkable people, but here we're talking about ordinary Americans folks who just showed up for work every day for eight years and drove a canal literally through, through a jungle. It's quite amazing. And uh, as I, you, can, you can see much of it today. When I say you can see much of it today, what I mean is that uh, in 1862, they, uh, the, the canal was so incredible, doing such marvelous things, had made such a difference. They wanted to use bigger boats, so they widened the canal. And then in 1900, I think, or 1902, uh, somewhere, nine, maybe, maybe 1910, somewhere in the first uh, decade or two of the 20th century, they widened it some more, and it became the New York Barge Canal. But um, 
you can still see sections. See, uh, so today the bod, the, the the locks are much bigger. So there are fewer of them because what happened back then was that the height of the lock depended on the size of the gate you were going to uh, install to um, to stop the water, and the size of the gate depended on what a man could push. In those days, right, no electrical power. Lock gates were opened and closed by a man getting off the boat and opening and closing the gates. So they figured out the maximum size gate allowed only for a 12-foot lift. And so... Uh, uh, that meant a lot of locks. There were some places where there was like a staircase of locks. As soon as you got out of one lock, you moved into the next and then the next. And you sort of, well, a lot of that's been replaced now by one huge lock or two huge locks. So there are fewer locks, but all of this was, was done um, late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, unfortunately, or f uh, progress is progress. It's all good. What happened was that the railroads came along. And the railroad started, they could move goods for even less expensively than the canal. The canal was doing it at about $5 a ton. The railroads were doing it less and more quickly. You know, in the early days, a steady four miles an hour was an amazing thing. And by the way, how did they drive those early canal boats um, in the uh, 1800s? With mules. Why not horses? Well, they preferred mules. And um, you, you might remember a famous song, Right, and I'll play it. I hope is the um, uh, this guy sings about his mule called Sal, and then 15 miles on the Erie Canal. Uh, they used mules for a number of reasons. First of all, they were less temperamental. They just pulled away day after day. And number two, the water in the canal was horribly contaminated because, as you can imagine, a lot of people on the banks of the canal, a lot of people on boats along the canal, and uh, you know, waste just ended up in the canal. So. Horses would drink the water in the canal. Turns out mules are <laughs> – would you who'd have believed it, right? Mules are fastidious about the water they drink. They'll only drink clean water. So it kept the mules kept healthy, whereas horses kept on dying from the contaminated water. Anyway, they, uh, they built a towpath. Not only are they building a 40-foot-wide canal – they're building a 12-foot-wide towpath next to the canal that the mules would walk along and uh, ropes would be attached to the boat, and they'd pull the boat along. And um, in, in itself, the whole story of the mules was an amazing story. Anyway, this thing was a stupendous success. It was fantastic for New York. It was fantastic for the Midwest. It was fantastic for the country. And it just seemed highly improbable where even somebody like Thomas Jefferson said, forget about it ain't going to work. It's just not possible. And so uh, the, lesson, the lesson to me is uh, don't listen to the naysayers. Uh, people will often tell you something isn't possible. Why would you listen? Just do what you have to do when you have to do it. And you too can go ahead and build your own Erie Canal, just opening up riches unimagined. And that's exactly what happened between 1817 and 1825 and in the years that followed thereafter. The fantastic story of the Erie Canal. And um, I am, when I head to my Passover Freedom Conference, I, um, which will be in Niagara Falls, I'm going to try very hard to visit some of the places along the route where you can actually still see the old canal. 
Um, much of it doesn't have water in it anymore. The locks, of course, are deteriorated and falling apart. By the way, these locks were built by German stonemasons, right? They didn't pour, make them out of poured concrete. The locks were built by meticulously cutting stones and laying them in place. Oh, look, this is an amazing achievement, absolutely amazing, and I'm, I'm very much hoping to at least see some of it. Folks, that is as far as we're going in uh, today's show. So uh, please go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, purchase yourself a library pack. And uh, remember the promotional code, Passover, P-A-S-S-O-V-E-R, P-A-S-S-O-V-E-R, Passover, will get you a 15% discount on those library packs, and uh, you'll also get free shipping. Everything else on the website as well. Make sure you are on the mailing list for Thought Tools or for Ask the Rabbi or for Susan's Musings, uh, because apart from anything else, it allows me to stay in touch and let you know where I'm speaking, where I'm appearing, or uh, whenever we put new stuff up on the website that you might be interested in. Uh, great. Well, that's as far as we can go. It is sadly time to say goodbye, and that means that uh, I have to thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm a uh, compulsive numbers watcher, so I, I really do watch the numbers of people who are listening or downloading or otherwise participating in the podcast. Thanks to all of you. Much appreciated. And um, uh, to, uh, to, um, to all of you, those of you who are Jewish, a happy Passover. If you're listening to this uh, soon after its publication, uh, fantastically happy Easter. And uh, until next week, and I'll probably be uh, taping the next show right in the middle of the Passover Holy Day. Um, I will say to you now that I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapp. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.